Amen, church. I'm going to invite you to stand at this moment. And it caught me off guard in the last service. Had everything planned out. This is how we're going to start the service. But as Pastor Nathan and Damien led us this morning with that song, and I don't know if you know the story of that song, but the man who wrote it, a guy named Horatio Spafford, or Spafford, however you want to say that, he wrote it as he passed over the place where his children died between England and America. He got a message from his wife, I survived, and your daughters did not. And he quickly got on a boat. And could you imagine that? Days and weeks of travel on a boat to come to the place where you know where that ship went down and to pin a song like this. It is well with my soul when sea billows roll and take away the things that I love. When sea billows roll and change the circumstances of my story. And he writes this song and he has the hope, the anchor of his soul, woven throughout those verses and deeply embedded in that chorus. It is well with my soul. And so I want us to be reminded this morning as we open and as we read God's word, (laughs) called a little audible this morning. What is that anchor of hope? It is Jesus, and it is something that is now, and it is also something that is to come, like we sang in that last verse, when the Lord shall descend. And in Revelation 21, we get this incredible passage that one day the hope that we have will become reality. And because of that reality, we can say this moment, we can cling to the truth that it is well with our soul because we have the anchor of hope and his name is Jesus. Revelation 21. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from under the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people. The dwelling place of God is with man. And we get to be his people. Verse 4, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither there shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is the word of the Lord. God, we come to you this morning. And my heart, my desire, my prayer for us this morning is that we would cling so closely to you, Jesus. That we would cling so closely to the hope that we have in you. That that no matter what, Jesus, no matter the circumstances, no matter the situations, the highs and the lows, the good and the bad, Jesus, you are steady. You are faithful. Your word tells us that is one of the the greatest attributes of who you are, God, is that you are always faithful. You are not shifting. Your character does not change because you are eternal and everlasting. 
And so Jesus, this morning, as we've uh, prepared our hearts through worship, through singing, through prayer, God, would you come and would you fill us, Holy Spirit, fill this place that we may be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that your living and active word would do its work in us and would change us, it would sharpen us, and it would encourage us that we would be changed by you, Jesus. By your work, Holy Spirit, for the glory of your name, Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. You can grab a seat. Well, my name is Luke, I'm one of the pastors here, and it's just a joy to be with you as we continue in our series, a Hebrews called Perfect, where we have one goal, and that is to look at the perfect one, Jesus Christ. That's all we're here to do, that's all we're ever going to be about as a church is one thing, it's helping fix our eyes on Jesus. And we're not looking at the things around us, we're not putting in our hope in the things of this world, we are doing one thing and we are clinging close to Jesus And so I want to ask you that question today. I want to ask you, what are you clinging to? What is the thing, if you're truly just honest with your heart and your mind and your soul, what are you clinging to this morning? Maybe you're clinging students to your grade point average. Maybe parents and adults, you're clinging to how your children look after you parented. Like, we did a good job. (laughs) Way to go us. Maybe you're clinging to your work record. Maybe you're clinging to the numbers in your bank account. Maybe you're clinging to the things that you think other people think about you. What are you clinging to this morning? And what we're going to find in our passage in Hebrews chapter 7, if you want to turn there, is that the people of God, the Hebrew people, the one that this letter was written to, they would cling to something that was good. They would cling to something that is worthwhile, that ultimately had a massive purpose in the story of God's redemptive work through Jesus Christ. But what we're going to see this morning is that there's something greater. And that's just a public service announcement. I'm going to tell you, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Simple gospel. It is Jesus and what he's done. So what are you clinging to this morning? If we remember just kind of laying foundation. The scriptures, all the Bible has one purpose, and it's to point us to Jesus. It's to point us to his work, and it does it through narrative. It does it through poetry. It does it through wisdom literature. It does it through histories and chronicling things and counting things like in the book of Numbers, because all of it matters in one big story to point up to the culmination that Jesus is who he says he is, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that Jesus ultimately is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who will one day return and make all things new and will wipe away every tear from our eyes and all the questions and all the pain and all the angst will ultimately find its rest in Jesus Christ. And that's what we get to look at this morning in Hebrews chapter 7. We left off last week as Pastor Joel was guiding us through that, and and you guys were reading this passage, and at the end of chapter 6, it says, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of, say it with me, oh, come on, second service, after the order of? All right, so then we're going to pick up in verse 1, which is what's on the screen. For this, say it with me. All right, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned the tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and he is also the king of Salem, that is the king of peace. 
He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. So we're going to pause right there on that passage, and we're going to kind of walk through the rest of this passage, uh, verses 1 through 19 here this morning. But I want us to understand something, because it was kind of a cliffhanger last week that Pastor Joel threw. He's the priest in the order of Melchizedek, which is just a, a weird name, and you should name your kids that just for fun. See how it goes for them in school. And he throws that on us, and it just leaves it there. So who is Melchizedek? What does he have to do with the writing of Hebrews? And how does he fit into this ultimate story, this narrative that is pointing people to Jesus? So if the whole purpose of the Bible is to point people to Jesus, and the book of Hebrews is one small piece of that, we need to understand its context. The writer is writing to God's people, the Israelites, Hebrew people, and what he is doing in that moment is he's going to challenge, he's going to push them to think differently about who they are and why they operate and live in the manner that they do according to their laws, according to the rules that they put in place so that they would be God's people. And so he's gonna, the writer's going to challenge them a little bit. And my hope and my prayer for us this morning is to do that as well, to challenge you, asking you that question, what do you cling to this morning? What do you cling to? When we think about Melchizedek, we have to go back into the Old Testament. Because again, the story is all interlocked. It's all interconnected. So what I do whenever I'm reading through passages of the Bible, when I have questions, when I'm looking at it, what I like to do is either one, if, if I have enough margin, I'll just write the questions. Okay, so what does this mean? What's the connection here? Like, that's what I do. Well, I want to challenge you. So Hebrews chapter 7 is directly tied to Genesis chapter 14. So I just fill it in on uh, in my Bible, so I always know, and maybe you have a Bible that has cross-references there, but that's what this is. So write Genesis 14, and you can go back and look at that later if you're in small groups, if you're in, in those types of environments. Feel free to go back. This gives the history, but I'm going to give just a quick snapshot of what took place in Genesis chapter 14, and where Melchiz well, Melchizedek shows up, and why he's important, why he's a, a pivotal point in the story for the God's people, and why he is so important for us as we look at this passage in Hebrews chapter 7. So Melchizedek shows up on the scene after Abraham went on a rescue mission. His nephew Lot, had they kind of parted ways as God had given them in Genesis 12, leave and go to the land of Canaan. His nephew had taken a little bit different path and took up residence in Sodom, this village, this community there. What had happened, some kings had come in and uh, some other people, some warring tribes had come and they took over and they took Lot and the people of Sodom away. Abraham got news of this, and I love what it says in the passage in Genesis 14. He heard of his kinsmen. He heard what had happened to his kinsmen, and as a good family member, he went to go rescue him. He went to go seek and to save that which was lost. Sounds very familiar to Jesus. When Jesus hears that we are lost, Jesus moved, and he acted on our behalf to rescue and redeem us. And so Abram goes out is at battle, it is at war, and brings back Lot. And as they come back, as they're journeying back to their home, they encounter Melchizedek in Genesis 14, verses 17 through 24. And that passage is where we find Melchizedek for the first time. And what happens in that moment is Melchizedek shows up and blesses Abraham. And what we find out in the passage is that Melchizedek is the priest of the God Most High. 
It's interesting because he just shows up out of nowhere. It's all of a sudden, it's like, here's this story that's happening, and then there's a random character that drops into the story. It becomes like a, a pivotal moment, a fork in the road for Abraham to recognize a few things. That God is at work in the whole entire world. That everything is not wrapped up around Abraham and his story, though his story is so important to, this, to the redemption of the whole entire world. It's not just about Abraham and his wife, Sarah. But that God has already been working in this man, Melchizedek, and he just shows up on the scene. We don't have any backstory, but Melchizedek plays this important role in the story because he blesses Abraham, and then he does two things. We often say around here at Chapel Point, he sharpens and encourages. So what he does in that moment as he blesses him, he gives thanks to God the Most High for saving and redeeming Abraham and Lot and bringing them out. But then he reminds Abraham in that moment, it's not by your power but that God did it through you, Abraham. God worked through you in order to bring redemption. And what happens in this passage, Abraham humbles himself. He humbles himself by giving a tenth of all of his possessions to Melchizedek. And we know Melchizedek is a king. He's also a priest of God Most High. And in that passage, in Hebrews chapter 7, it says that as well. That word God Most High is El Elyon, E-L-E-L-Y-O-N. God supreme, the God above all gods, God Most High. This is the one true God that is referenced and that is Abraham is following. And Melchizedek is a priest mediating the relationship between God and his people. And Abraham humbles himself by giving a tenth of his possessions. That's why tithes and offerings are so important because they have nothing to do with the dollar or the possessions or the stuff, but it's a recognition that it is not, it's not mine. I have done nothing, so I will humble myself and I will give that that I have to show respect, honor, gratitude, dependency on another. And I think what we begin to see is this picture of our relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and it's mediated through this relationship that Melchizedek shows up and brings. And it's right after this, too, just a little, just kind of vignette here. It's right after this passage that the Abrahamic covenant is given to Abraham. God says, Abraham, do not fear, for I am your reward and your treasure. Abraham, don't fear because I'm your reward and I'm your treasure. And Abraham is like, how is this possible? I don't have an heir. I don't have a son to carry on the lineage and the line of, of my people. And God says, I will do that. And your offspring will number more than the stars in the heaven and more than all the sand on the earth. We get this promise. And, and I think they're so tied and they're so connected when we begin to understand what Abraham did, humbling himself when he humbled himself under a priest, a mediator between the relationship between God and man, we see the promise and the fulfillment, the, the story continues on. And we see that in Melchizedek. So that's where he is, that's why he shows up in this thing. But a few things are unique about this, is that Melchizedek was, I said earlier, a king and a priest. And his name is, is so powerful because, again, it's going to tell us something about who Jesus is. And it asks us that question, what are we clinging to this morning? His name literally means this. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. If you're taking notes, you can see this here. His, that's a little, little translation of his name, king of righteousness. And he is the king of Salem. Salem is short for Jerusalem. You can also, this is where we get the root word shalom. 
this idea of the Hebrew people, it's not just peace, that there would be an end to conflict. It's, it's not just saying, stop fighting. That's not peace. Peace really means, shalom really means, as it should be. Where every tear is wiped away, where every broken heart is mended, where there's no more mourning, where death has no power. This is shalom. This is peace. And Melchizedek shows up in the story as a type of Christ. He shows up as a forerunner, as a picture of who Jesus is going to be all along. So from the very beginning of the story of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 14, we begin to see pictures of Jesus, these types, these understandings. This is who Jesus is. And what the writer of Hebrews is doing as he talks and he challenges the Hebrew people, he's calling back to these previous stories. He's calling back to something deeper, something greater. In, in the Chronicles of Narnia, there's this passage where uh, Aslan lays down on the, the table and offers himself as a sacrifice. There is a deeper magic that's at work, a mystery of God at work. And we begin to see that and get hints of that as he calls back to this. And so we continue in chapter 7, that this is who Melchizedek is. He's this unique, mysterious, that he's a part of something deeper, calling back to something greater. In verse, chapter, in verse 4 of chapter 7, it says, See how great this man, who was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils, and those descendants of Levi who received priestly office have a commandment in the law that ta- to take tithes from the people, that is from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them receives tithes from Abraham and blessed him, him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In one case, the tithes are received by moral men, but the other case by one whom it is testified he lives. One might even say that Levi himself who receives the tithes paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins when Melchizedek met him. It starts off by saying, see how great this man is. So he's building a case, the writer of Hebrews is building a case about Melchizedek, and he's drawing that in contrast to the Levitical priesthood. The priests were the ones that the people, they would bring their sacrifices to the altar, and those would be the things that would be given as worship to God. Those would be the things that would help them bridge the gap. If they committed a sin, they were to bring a sacrifice to the temple, and the priests would offer that as a sacrifice so that that person's sins would be forgiven. And there's the Day of Atonement, which is the big festival that the, the people of Israel would come, and they would offer sacrifices, and they would do all this work so that their relationship with God would be unhindered. And it was a continual process of offering sacrifices, of abiding by certain rules and structures and systems that were put in place to keep them in a right relationship with God. And the writer of Hebrews begins to draw the contrast. See how great a man this is, this Melchizedek man. He didn't come through the Levitical line. He didn't come through the priests of Levi. He didn't come through Aaron. And if you want to write another little note, so where did the, where's the distinction drawn? It's Exodus 28. We get the book of Genesis, and we get the book of Exodus. Exodus 28 is where we get the establishment of Aaron, the brother of Moses, and the beginning and the order of the Levitical priesthood. And the writer is calling out something is greater. And so we're, we're going to play a little game here. You guys down for a game? Hello, are you guys awake? Are you guys ready for a game? There we go. Who loves Pictionary? This is also called Luke is going to embarrass himself on stage. How's that sound? You guys in for that? Great. All right, so this one's an easy one. We're going to play Pictionary, a little crowd participation. You guys ready for this? Yeah. 
All right, all right, we're going to keep working on this. One. All right, here we go. This one's easy. Just shout it out real... It is a circle, but that's not the picture. All right, good try, good try. I like the enthusiasm. All right, so what do we got here? Hey, you guys are so smart. Give yourselves a round of applause. That's really good there. Yes, nicely done there. Oh, boy, you got the round of applause. I know what you're talking about. All right, so this is the second one. So you guys got one point on the board. You're doing good. I'm proud of you guys. Your mom's real proud of you as well. All right, so this is the second one. Person, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus is always the answer, but not in this case. All right, so it is a person. So well done, Brett Williams up here on the front. I'm so proud of you. Um, it is a person. Now, this is the tricky one. This is the one I've been working on. I practiced a lot last night to get this drawing down to a T. All right, you all ready? You ready? You ready? Okay. All right. Dead person. I knew you guys, some of you were going to say it, but I love, I think I heard someone say it earlier. It is a shadow, right? This is, well, okay. Why are we laughing, folks? Like, can you draw a better shadow? Mm, you come on up if you think you can. All right. All right. So maybe make it a little thing. I don't know. Here you go. Here's your shadow. So you guys stop judging me. All right. There's the shadow. It is a terrible drawing, so don't judge me on that. But the sun, right, you know how this works, shines on something, and then it casts a shadow, right? Whoever shouted that out first, well done. You do win today. Uh, you get free coffee at the cafe. Okay. But here's what we understand from that, is that Melchizedek and the priesthood, they foreshadow Jesus and his work. And it'll show up on there in a second. Melchizedek and the priesthood foreshadow Jesus and his work. That's what we're beginning to see, the contrast that the writer of Hebrews is doing. He, what he's trying to help the, the Hebrew people see is, you all, y'all, as a, a proper Texan would say, y'all live and worship and operate in the shadow, the law, the priesthood, all of these things are meant to reflect and symbolize and show off something that is greater. Now, I love my son, Wyatt. That boy is a hot mess. Y'all can pray for him. You can pray for me, I guess. But we're always, when we walk, one of his favorite games is to play. If there's a shadow that's cast, he goes, <laughs> gotcha, dad. And he, I'm like, why do you want to stomp on me? Like, what part of that communicates love as a four-year-old to your father? And we'll do it again and again and again as we walk and he stomps on the shadow. He thinks it's me. It's a joke he's playing. It, it outlines who I am, the shadow on the ground. But when he hurts himself and stubs his toe or falls out of his bed, what does he cling to? Does he cling to the shadow, saying, hold me, Dad, help make it better? No, he comes and he runs to me, to the real thing. And he clings to that. And then he cries, and he has tears, and then we're able to comfort him and console him. I think what the writer of Hebrews is doing through this contrast of the Levitical law and the priesthood and showing Melchizedek is he's beginning to show the people of Hebrews. He's challenging them. He's pushing against their thinking and their understanding, saying, this is good. It is a true outline, but it's not the real thing. And he's asking them 
as Hebrew people who are beginning to trust in Jesus to see a new life, to be transformed and following after Jesus, he's encouraging them, cling to Jesus, the true hope, the anchor for your soul. Cling to the real thing. Cling to Jesus. And so the question again this morning for you is, what are you clinging to? Are you clinging to the shadows? Are you clinging to the things that are true and good and outline the things of Jesus? Are you clinging to your church heritage? Well, I was in church, you know, and I had a drug problem and my parents drugged me to church Sunday, Wednesday. That's like these like cheesy jokes that people would say about church. Like, are you clinging to that? Are you clinging to your heritage? Are you clinging to, well, we were at this and I did that? Are you clinging to why my mom said this and my mom's mom said that? What are you clinging to this morning? Are they good things that tell the story of Jesus? Are you clinging to Jesus himself? Do you see him with clarity? And is your life truly transformed by Jesus? And are you clinging to him in this moment? Because here's what I know for us. Here's what is so powerful about the testimony of Horatio Spafford. Is that he clung to something that was deeper in the worst moments of his life. And are we clinging to that same thing? A hope that will one day become a reality. Because we can cling to a lot of things. We can cling to our family lineage. We can cling to our history. We can cling to the dollars in our bank account. We can cling to the false securities that we hold in our lives as value. Or we can cling to something that's eternal. And that's what he calls out in the next part of the verse in verses 11 and following. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest? He says, if the Levitical law had worked out, guys, you wouldn't have needed anything else. If you could have checked all the boxes, went to sacrifice, showed up for church, you know, was nice to my, you know, my grandparents, and I, you know, attended, you know, Thanksgiving meal with my family. If I checked off all those good boxes, then I'm good to go with God. He's calling out there's something more at work. They were shadows of ways that we were to think about and consider and to live in our relationship with God. But there's something that needed to come, something that was greater. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? So again, he's showing that contrast between the Levitical law and Melchizedek, these two priests of the Most High God. For the one whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, which no one has ever served at the altar. That right there is speaking specifically to Jesus Christ. Jesus was born not of the Levitical line. He wasn't a grandchild, a great-grandchild of the people, you know, like down the lineage of Aaron. He didn't belong to the tribe of Levi, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. He belonged to another and this was promised, this was prophecy as we move into this Advent season. We get to hear and remember these stories that Jesus came not as everyone expected him to. He didn't come through the priestly line, but yet he is, as scripture tells us in Hebrews, that he is the high priest forever. He is the high priest who mediates our relationship with God. He's the high priest who understands where we're coming from. Verse 14, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about the priests. Said nothing about the priests. So why would scripture continue to show this distinction that something is greater? Because we need to understand, church, that we cannot cling. We cannot cling to something that is not the real thing. We can't put our hope in our doings. We can't put our hope in what we have of ourselves. 
but we have to put our hope in something that is eternal. What are you clinging to this morning? Is it eternal, everlasting? Is it real? Does it leave you wanting after a long time? Does it satisfy you? Does it bring a peace? A peace, a shalom, a as it should be. We know that the law ultimately was given. It is good, it foreshadows, but the law reveals our need. The law revealed our need that we could never attain. And I think that's so true of us here in West Michigan as well. It's really true all over the world. It just takes different shapes, it looks different, it sounds different. We're all still trying to save ourselves. We're also trying to redeem ourselves, that brokenness. What happened at the fall in Genesis chapter three is it broke our relationship with God. Sin ruined that. God had to stand at a distance and cast Adam and Eve out of the garden. It broke our relationship with one another. Adam and Eve now had conflict. They had strife amongst themselves and we see it re replicated down the line in their, bro in their sons as the brothers fought and killed one another. This is not how it should be. This is not shalom. This is not as it should be. The law reveals our need because it ultimately shows us where sin breaks us. It breaks us inside. If we are truly honest with ourselves and we find ourselves longing and lacking for peace, for something to be made right, it's revealing to us that there is something more at work. There is a deeper magic. There is a deeper well to draw from. There is something greater to experience. And our forms and our traditions of church, they've changed. I grew up in a church where every Sunday there was two things I knew we were going to do. We were going to recite the Lord's Prayer and we were going to sing the doxology. If you know what the doxology is, it's a short little song. It says, praise God, from whom all blessings flow. It's just a little snippet, but it was a, something that would happen. That's a tradition. And man, is it good. Sometimes I long for it. I long for the corporate reciting of the Lord's Prayer. Sometimes I longed to sing the doxology with you guys. But it's just a tradition. I am not staking my eternity on a good church tradition because the little Methodist church that I grew up in back in the day did it every Sunday. And I love that. I love the story. I love my lineage. I love my history. I'm not staking my eternity on that. I'm not clinging to that as the anchor of my soul. I need something that's greater. And I've been through some storms. I've caused some storms. I need to cling to something that's greater. Because the law reveals our need that we can't do it. We cannot make ourselves perfect. <laughs> this is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why don't you just like look around the room. It's incredible to be in this moment with you to look at you and to think, Ain't none of y'all perfect. None of you. And you don't have to try anymore. You don't have to try to measure up. 
You don't have to try and have your stuff together. What we get to do, church, is we get to cling so closely to the real thing, to Jesus Christ this morning. Because we cannot make ourselves perfect. This has become more evident, verse 15. When another priest arises, Jesus Christ arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who is not of the lineage of the Levites, who is different. He is a priest and a king of the Most High God. He has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. He is God, and he shows up in our story. For it is witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This again calls Calling back to Psalm 110. This is who Jesus is in all of scriptures to do one thing and to highlight who Jesus is. The Savior of the world. The hope has come. For on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and its uselessness. The former is set aside. It does not matter anymore. Because Jesus has showed up in person And he is here. His Holy Spirit is here. He will never leave. He will never forsake. He is here and he is alive. He is alive and he is working and he is redeeming and he is restoring and he is saving today because he is alive. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. He's Jesus. So I ask again, what are you clinging to this morning? The Hebrew people were challenged and they were thrown kind of a, 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 they were pushed against. Saying, well, if you don't keep the law, if you don't keep the law, you're not going to measure up. I want you to hear this morning, church, you lack nothing if your hope is in Jesus. You lack nothing if your hope is in Jesus this morning. You lack nothing if your hope is in Jesus this morning. And as we respond to the word of God this morning, I want to invite you to answer this question. What do you cling to? And my hope is that it is Jesus. And I want us to see Jesus is the king of righteousness. Is he your king of righteousness. Jesus is the king of peace, the the king of shalom as it should be. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law today. Jesus is the rescuer, the redeemer. Jesus is the promise and he is also the promise keeper. Jesus is the one who left it all to redeem us. He left it all. Jesus the one who made a way for you. When the sea billows roll, Jesus is the one that made a way for you. Jesus is the sacrifice, so you don't have to keep bringing sacrifices to the altar anymore. Jesus is the one who paid for your sins on the cross, taking them to the grave and three days rising again. What are you clinging to this morning, church? Friends, brothers, sisters, what are you clinging to? Jesus is who he says he is, and I'm asking you this morning to fill that in. 
What do you need Jesus to be for you? What, 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 what shows up, what stirs your heart? Do you understand that you actually have righteousness in you? Because you are covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The old is gone and the new has come when you believe in your trust and you put your hope in Jesus. Because you will lack nothing when that happens. Jesus is the Son of God. And that question is for you this morning. Who is he? And will you live in light of that as a transformed father? Will you let him do that work in you this morning? And so as we respond, as we sing, as we hear these words sung, and as we join in worship, I just want to ask you that. What are you clinging to? And what do you need Jesus to be? Where do you need him to show up? Where are you clinging to the former things? And I'm inviting you to cling this morning so closely to Jesus Christ. An anchor of hope that allows us to enter into relationship with God now and forevermore. Jesus, would you be blessed and honored and lifted high as we worship you, as we serve you, God, as we respond to your word. Jesus, I just, I pray for each one of us here this morning that we would find our rest in you, that we would find our shalom in you, our peace, that you have covered us and made us righteous. You have blessed us. And so, God, we want to respond to you, God. We want to give you all that we are for your honor and for your glory because we have done nothing. We couldn't earn it. We couldn't make ourselves perfect. But, Jesus, you have, you have redeemed, and you've brought us home. So, God, would you... Breathe your peace on my friends here this morning. For those joining us online, would you breathe peace into their hearts and their minds? May we cling to you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.